Well, as we start a new year, we begin this new study on the topic of the Christian mind. And as we begin, we want to start with this introduction to this long series that we will be doing over the coming months as we look at various texts from Scripture that teach us about the mind, about what it is, about how we are to renew it, how we are to think God's thoughts after Him, what that looks like. The year ahead is going to be filled with a lot of expositions of various texts related to this topic. But for tonight, I want to introduce it by looking at the question, what happens when men don't think? Specifically, what happens when Christian men don't think? And because this ministry is called Men of the Word, I want to begin with a quote from R.C. Sproul that deals with the Word and our response to it. R.C. Sproul wrote this in his book, Knowing Scripture. He said this, The Bible is addressed primarily, though not exclusively, to our understanding. That means that our mind is, is involved in the study of Scripture. This is difficult to communicate to modern Christians who are living in what may be the most anti-intellectual period of Western civilization. Notice I did not say anti-academic or anti-technological or anti-scholarly. I said anti-intellectual. There is a strong current of antipathy to the function of the mind in the Christian life. This is what R.C. Sproul has noticed, and notice he says, this is perhaps the most anti-intellectual period of Western civilization. And we see that certainly in the culture around us. If we look to those places today called the, the places of higher learning, there is perhaps no other time in history where the academy is so disconnected with reality. But that is a problem that is not just characteristic of the world. It is also painfully characteristic, painfully characteristic of the church as well. But as we look at Scripture, we see this is not a problem that is unique to our time. Even at the earliest years of the church's existence, this was an issue that needed to be addressed. For example, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, writes these words to the church in Rome. After giving 11 chapters of profound doctrine, what he summarizes as the mercies of God, he then brings us to this exhortation. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We see even at this time, around AD 55, when Paul writes to the Roman church, there was a grave danger that confronted the Christians of that time, and it was the danger of being conformed to the world, using the world's speech, mimicking the world's actions and behaviors, 
having the same attitude as the world, thinking the same thoughts. It was a problem then as much as it was a, is a danger to us today. Moreover, we see that in this text, not only is there a grave danger, but there is also a great need. And that need that Paul identifies here is that Christians be able to prove what the will of God is. And that word for prove means to put to critical examination so as to recognize what is authentic. In other words, God's will is authentic. What he has revealed is good and acceptable and perfect. But what is needed is that we engage in recognizing that will. That's the great need. In response to these two things, Paul gives us this central exhortation here, found in verse 2, and he says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In response to the danger of conformity to the world, And in response to the great need that exists to be able to recognize what God's will is, he gives this fundamental exhortation that summarizes the Christian life, that summarizes what growth in the Christian life is all about. And it's this, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That summarizes what is set before us. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, a little bit later in the year, we are going to look at this text in great detail. But it raises the question at this point, what is the mind? What is it that needs to be renewed? So let's begin with a summary definition of the mind. Now, understand this. As we go through this entire series, we're going to be coming back to this topic of the mind many times. So what I'm going to tell you right now is not going to be an exhaustive treatment of this topic, but we need an operational definition as we begin. What is the mind? I want to say this as we begin as well. It would be very incorrect to suggest that the mind is synonymous with the brain, with that organ that is responsible for memories and physical actions and so on and so forth. The mind is not synonymous with the brain. Moreover, it would be wrong to conclude that the mind represents what we call intelligence quotient, IQ. You know, that number that you may be a little embarrassed of, that number that that people assign to you. We wonder where it comes from, but they assign it to you based on your knowledge of a particular area of study. The mind is not IQ. Well, what is the mind? And again, here's a summary of it as we move forward this evening. The mind is best described as a disposition. It is the pattern of making judgments about fundamental issues in life. The mind is that which is engaged in making these decisions and making these judgments of discerning truth from error, right from wrong, beauty from ugliness, reality from myth. The mind is a disposition. The mind is that which we use to perceive, to interpret, to to make sense of ourselves, of the world around us, and of our Creator. The mind is the domain of convictions, The mind is the domain of values, of desires, of judgments, 
of attitudes and affections. All of these things spring from the mind, this fundamental disposition. And the mind is fundamentally religious in nature. You've heard it said, the man is incurably religious. God has created him to be so. And that arises from within the mind because the mind is the seat from which worship arises. Whether that be worship of the one true God or worship of some false counterfeit God, worship arises from the mind. Now, as we look and survey scripture on this topic, we can also note these following observations. In order for us to understand God better, God describes himself in the scriptures as having a mind and as having thoughts. Romans 11 verse 34 says, For who has known the mind of God? Or who has become his counselor or teacher? Or we could look at Isaiah 55 verse 8 where Yahweh says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. God is described in a way that is helpful for us to come to know him as having a mind and as having thoughts. And because mankind has been made in God's image, a fundamental aspect of our existence is the mind. God has created us as thinking beings to reflect his glory. He created us so that we would exercise our minds and by doing so would reflect the glory of his mind in a small but analogous way. That's why God created us. God created us to think his thoughts after him. Now, of course, God's mind and his thoughts are infinitely greater and truer, deeper than our minds. But nonetheless, God has given us that that disposition, that capacity to be as mirrors and in an analogous way to reflect that glory. Yet we also read in Scripture that sin is what corrupts the mind. In fact, when we look at man's existence and the corruption of sin, what we call original sin and the doctrine of total or radical depravity, we see that sin first and foremost affects the mind. It affects the mind. You read in Genesis 6 verse 5 that in that early era, the thoughts and intentions, the thoughts and intentions, that which described the mind, were continually and radically evil. We go to the New Testament, we read in Romans chapter 1 verse 28 that the unbeliever, the unregenerate man is darkened in his understanding. We read also in Ephesians and in other texts that his mind is hardened and his thoughts are bent against God. He has both an intellectual incapacity now to think God's thoughts after him to his glory, and he has a moral bias that in his unregenerate state, he will always suppress truth. He will always suppress God's revelation. He will always suppress it in his unregenerate 
state. But we also read that it is regeneration, being made new, the new creation that restores to man's mind the capacity to think rightly for God's glory. Regeneration restores to us the capacity, the enablement to think God's thoughts after him, to think his thoughts to his glory, to recognize and to perceive that which is truth, to recognize and perceive that which is beautiful and noble and right, and to think those thoughts and to enjoy in that process fellowship with our Redeemer. But even though regeneration restores to the mind that capacity, we also read in Scripture, we read it already in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that the life set before the new regenerate believer, the life set before him is a life of constant transformation through the discipline of renewing the mind. It happened to us as believers in a phenomenal moment at that miracle of new birth. It happened to us that the light came on. We were enlightened. And for that first time in our existence, we beheld the beauty of Jesus Christ. We began to think truly. But even though that happened at that monumentous moment, the whole process now of growth in the Christian life is about the cultivation of those thoughts, the development of a mind that increasingly and more consistently and deeper and broader is able to comprehend what God has revealed to us. So Christians, we must actively engage as our life's calling, actively engage in the renewing of our minds. This is really the summary of our primary task, learning to think better the thoughts of God. Now, that raises the question, what happens when Paul's exhortation is not implemented? What happens when it isn't taken seriously? What happens when Christians do not renew their minds, when they fail to think God's thoughts after him? It is a problem, as we've already stated. Let me read some statements that have been written that describe the consequences and the state of the church today. Harry Blameyers wrote this back in 1963, a long time ago, but it still has an appropriate, uh, an appropriate sense for our day today. He wrote this, quote, The Christian mind has succumbed to the secular drift with a degree of weakness and nervelessness unmatched in Christian history. It is difficult to do justice in words to describe the complete loss of intellectual morale in the 20th century church. One cannot characterize it without having to recourse to language which will sound hysterical and melodramatic. There is no longer a Christian mind. There is still, of course, a Christian ethic, a a Christian practice, and Christian spirituality. But as a thinking being, the modern Christian has succumbed to secularism. Now, Harry Blameyers will go on to prescribe some of his solutions to this, this problem. And 
He is mistaken in some of the ways that he seeks to rectify the problem. But his diagnosis of the modern Christian mind is certainly fitting. Another writer, Os Guinness, has said this, Failing to think Christianly, evangelicals have been forced into the role of cultural imitators and adapters rather than originators. In biblical terms, it is to be worldly and conformist, not decisively Christian. Now, you wrote that several decades ago as well, but these words are certainly fitting, and we certainly see this in our day today. We look at what has happened, especially in our culture, over the last two years. And if the warning flags are not going up in your, your minds, you're not thinking. There is a tremendous decay taking place in the culture at large, and it is enveloping vast swaths within the church. There is a failure in our day among vast numbers of professing Christians to actually think transcendently, to think biblically, to think Christianly of what is going on in the world. But I want to take it now one step more personal. Those statements as well as what we quoted from R.C. Sproul at the beginning, help us understand the problem as it exists at a, at, a very, at a very high level, a broad level within evangelicalism. But I want to address you now and say, this is not just a problem for the world out there. This has ramifications for us as well. And as we begin our series, I want to give you seven consequences of not thinking Christianly. Seven consequences that will affect your lives. You see, we, we, we say it often, ideas have consequences. And we can say this, thinking has consequences. And certainly not thinking has consequences. Well, what are those consequences? John Stott said, the consequences of not thinking lead to a misery and a menace for Christianity. And they is, that will certainly be the case for your life. If you, don't, you do not use your mind the right way, As God has created and recreated it to function. And if you don't conform it to the right standards, your mind will be a misery and a menace in your life and to the lives of those around you. So what are the consequences of not thinking Christianly? Number one, compromise. Compromise. Failing to think according to God's thoughts. Failing to think according to his revelation, what he has revealed about himself and this world and ourselves. Failure to think according to God's thoughts necessarily means thinking according to what are not God's thoughts. We, we saw that in, in Romans chapter 12 verse 2. That the specific response to the threat of conformity to this world, the specific response was to was to be renewed in the mind. But if the renewal is not taking place, you can be sure that conformity and compromise will be present. There is no such thing as neutrality, where you can kind of enter that world of thinking and of thoughts that does not neither conform to God and his revelation or 
to worldliness. There is no such place. There is no place of such neutrality. Thinking is always about conformity. We as creatures, we think, we reason, we learn, and all of that is done either in conformity to the standard of God or conformity to the standard of something else, namely the world. Compromise is a big problem. Compromise, compromise in our values, compromise in our convictions, compromise in behavior. And if you wonder why in your own life today that your life is so, so similar to unbelievers around you, you need not scratch your head for very long. You understand that the problem lies in the mind. It lies in your thinking. Something is not right. And the solution to that is not some form of behavior modification. The solution is going to be found in your thinking, in your thoughts. Not only is compromise a consequence of thinking unchristianly, but so is enslavement. Enslavement. Failure to think according to God's thoughts permits patterns of thinking to develop to take root, that will eventually enslave your entire mind. Failure to think according to God's thoughts will allow these patterns to develop and bring forms of enslavement. Notice what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. The Colossian church was very much engaged in a battle over thinking. The challenge was coming not from within the church. The challenge was coming from outside the church as those who sought to undermine the church and to bring it down were were trying to syncretize either Jewish legalism or forms of pagan mysticism or or Greek philosophical ideas. Try to to synthesize that and, and syncretize it with the gospel. And Paul writes to them a very stern warning as he begins in chapter 2 verse 8. This really is the heart of what motivated Paul to write. He said this, see to it, see to it, that no one takes you captive. That verb for to take captive as the idea of carrying off as plunder. See to it that no one carries you off as plunder. Some false teacher, some false ethical system, some false ideology, some false worldview. See to it that no one carries you off as plunder. And he identifies it and he says this, through philosophy, through men's love of humanistic wisdom, and through empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Notice what Paul does here. He creates an antithesis. He does say we are to be enslaved. He does say our our thoughts, our minds are to be taken off as plunder. But according to what? According to Christ. All of our thinking is to be brought in submission to his lordship. But when that doesn't happen, we will be enslaved. Our habits of thought will lead to entrenched practices which are very, very difficult later on to uproot. 
And living by lies, living by lies will always lead to tyranny. Tyranny to those lies themselves or tyranny to those who propagate those lies. The world, the flesh, and Satan actively seek to attract you, to attract us as Christian men to patterns of thought that are going to rob us of holiness, rob us of purity, rob us of freedom, rob us of joy. There's a danger of enslavement. And Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 11, Satan will appear as an angel of light to try to take you captive. Number three, cowardice. Cowardice. Not thinking biblically, not thinking Christianly will lead to cowardice. It's a significant consequence of The unbiblical use of the mind. Failure to think according to God's thoughts creates a deficiency. A deficiency of the courage that is needed to defend and and promote the truth in the face of opposition. And certainly we see a lot of this today, even in the church. This failure, this failure to think biblically. It leads Christians to begin to believe that their calling in life is simply to be nice. Calling is is to be nice and non-offensive in response even to direct statements of false teaching, to error and to immorality. We hear that word so much, you have to be nice. And it's not just found out there in, in the world, it's... It's found among a growing number of Christians who believe that their best witness in the world is just to be nice. Well, that is a myth. That is the result of not using the mind. That is the result of not thinking God's thoughts after him. I like what Harry Blamar says about this. And this was 50 years ago. He said this, an important contributory factor to the loss of mental morale by the church has been a misguided conception of Christian charity. It has been assumed that the charitable man suppresses his views in the same way that he subordinates personal interest. A wild fancy has taken hold of many Christians. They have come to imagine that just as the unselfish man restrains himself from snatching another piece of cake, so too he restrains himself from putting forward his point of view, end quote. Sadly, that marks many Christian men today. We just want to get through the day. We don't want to ruffle any feathers. People will say, outlandish things, okay, you do you, and we just carry on our way, and we're silent. That is the cowardice that comes from not thinking. Many different examples of this, even just this last week, I was astounded by two examples in particular that show cowardice. Some of you probably saw this picture, it is of Pete Buttigieg and his partner, Of all things, together in a hospital bed with newborn babies, 
making an announcement that they as a, a gay couple are now parents. First of all, this picture in itself is completely illogical. Why are they in a hospital bed? I guarantee you, none of them, neither one of them gave birth. They are men. And they're, they're in this bed and they are making an announcement, a birth announcement. It is illogical. It is the suppression of truth in all ungodliness. But what is astounding is the number of Christians who press like. One of them was a man by the name of Boz Chavigian, the grandson of Billy Graham, who puts himself forward as an expert on the problems of abuse in the church. Think of the irrationality of that. He is an expert on abuse. And look at this picture. This is the result of cowardice. The result of not thinking. Earlier this week as well, another prime example. There was a man by the name of Greg Epstein, an atheist, who was appointed head chaplain at Harvard University. He's an atheist. Appointed head chaplain at a university, and Timothy Keller the founder and pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, I mean, it's even in the name, Redeemer, sends him a text to congratulate him on his appointment as head chaplain as an atheist. That's cowardice. That is the result of unbiblical thinking. That is not the result of thinking God's thoughts after him. In response to this, I immediately thought of what Paul did to Peter in Galatians chapter 2. Peter, an apostle, an apostle. And Peter comes to, to Syrian Antioch after the church had been planted there and the church was enjoying this wonderful fellowship between Jew and Gentile, now able to take the Lord's Supper together. No distinctions, no divisions. And some men from Jerusalem come, show up at the church fellowships. These are Jews. And Peter is afraid. And let's read this text. Notice what Paul does. Paul was not just focused on being nice. He writes this in Galatians 2, 11 to 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel... I was nice. I was non-offensive. I quietly came alongside him and said, Peter, hey, let me get you over here. I got, got something to tell you. No, Paul says, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul had the courage necessary because he thought God's thoughts after him, Peter lapsed. 
Let's look at another one. Speaking of lapse, let's look at downfall. Downfall, failure, moral failure. Moral failure is the result of not thinking thoughts after God. Failure to think God's thoughts, failure to use your mind the way that God has created and recreated you to use it, will leave you open and vulnerable to the onslaught of temptation. It's like a city without walls. Look at James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. He says this. James writes, quote, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, by his own desire, evil desire. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. If lust, if this sinful desire is not being directly mortified. Now, remember, I said this. Desire, we are going to place in in the mind. Desire is an aspect of a disposition. It's not something totally different. It's part of the mind. It's part of the disposition. If lust is not being mortified by the right kind of thinking, by filling your mind with the thoughts of God, it will not remain docile. It will not remain tame but it will adulterate your thinking. It will spread like leaven. It will send its roots. And it will infest your mind. Sin is never happy with a certain level of accomplishment. Understand this, men, that if you look at your life and you look back, as we all do, and you see those moments of stumbling, that always originated in the mind. That always originated with the wrong thought. There's no one who thinks God's thoughts, whose mind is set and steadfast on the truth, who is thinking about that which is true and good and honorable and of good repute. No one just stumbles accidentally into sin. Your sin is connected to your thinking. And that fall, the fall into sin, began in your mind. You did not think the right thoughts. You entertained the wrong thoughts. You let them loose. First Thessalonians 5, 5 to 6 says this, We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert. Paul there is saying with the verb alert, he's, he's talking about our intellectual Mind awareness. Let us be alert and sober. One of the Puritans, William Bridge, said this. He says, as it is a heartwarming work. He's talking about meditation as a defense against temptation. He said this, as it is a heartwarming work, so it is that which will keep your hearts and souls from sinful thoughts. When the vessel is full, you can put in no more. Filling your minds with divine thoughts will not allow anything else to be poured in. Number five, fear. A fifth consequence of thinking unchristianly. It's fear. Failure to think God's thoughts after him makes one susceptible to ungodly fear. Now understand this. Fear in all its forms begins in the mind. It's not just a set of chemical 
occurrences, reactions. It's, it's not some kind of genetic disposition. It's not something to do with your DNA. Ultimately, fear is a matter of the mind. And there is both godly fear and ungodly fear. Ungodly fear is the exact opposite of what we would say is intelligent faith. What's intelligent faith? Intelligent faith is godly fear. Godly fear, according to Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or Proverbs 9 verse 10, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of God. Godly fear is when our minds are engaged in the right apprehension and the right reverence of who God is, and that is a matter of truth. That is a matter of knowledge. That is a matter of interacting with what God has said about himself. That creates godly fear. But when that godly fear is not present, when you do not fear God, you will fear something other than God. I like what the psalmist says in Psalm 46, verses 1 to 2. Notice how the psalmist's assertion is based on truth. He says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That is a propositional statement. That is a theological doctrinal statement. It describes who God is. And now notice the response. As the mind comprehends God as a refuge and strength to his people, as, he, as the mind comprehends God as a help in trouble, therefore, notice the logical consequence here, the inference that's drawn, therefore, we will not fear. He doesn't say we will usually not fear or we will not fear most things. He says it as an absolute statement. We will not fear. He goes on to say this, though the earth should change and though mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake in its, at its swelling pride, no matter what, and I can guarantee you none of us have seen any of the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. But we do see a lot of other things going on in our culture that are a lot less dramatic. But what happens? Men fear. Fear marks the current context. Politicians capitalize on fear. And how they do that is they purposely confuse and mislead people. The mass media profits from fear. People turn on the news and open their computers when they fear. Big tech profits from fear. And we will fear those wrong things when our minds do not think Christianly. We will give in to that. Number six, sentimentalism. Sentimentalism. It's kind of a hard Concept to put just in one word, but it's basically operating according to feelings. Failure to think according to God's thoughts automatically directs one to look for truth in some other source. Failure to think God's thoughts after him will automatically lead you to searching for truth, for, for gaining so-called knowledge through some other source, you will look somewhere else to define truth. And when you disband with the proper use of mind, you'll gravitate towards 
feelings. Sappiness is what this is. R.C. Sproul called this the sensuous Christian. The Christian who, who establishes his whole outlook on life on what he feels. In fact, Sproul goes on to say this. He says, many of us have become sensuous Christians, living by our feelings rather than through our understanding of the Word of God. Sensuous Christians cannot be moved to service, prayer, or study unless they feel like it. Their inner feelings become the ultimate test of truth. The faith of many professing Christians is exactly this today. In fact, there's some who have come up with a name for it. And they call it, what's, they call it moralistic, therapeutic deism. In other words, a kind of Christianity that is built around this therapeutic view of life. In fact, it's been said before that if you're not seeing a therapist, you're in denial. That's how many look at the world. I remember watching some of the, the updates of the Afghanistan crisis. And when the Secretary of State was pressed upon those who were being left behind in Afghanistan, the response wasn't a cogent, intelligent, factual response. He kept saying this, we have had such a hard day today. This has been hard on us. And I thought, hard on you? You're in, a, in the midst of safety. You're not answering cognitively. You're answering according to therapeutics, how I feel. So in other words, journalists, give me a break. I'm having a rough day. That marks so much of Christianity as well. And in this moralistic therapeutic deism, you have these kinds of, these kinds of qualities. There's a belief that God exists. He, he did create the world. He did order it. He does watch over human life. But God's greatest desire in all of this is that he wants people to be good, to be nice, to be fair. And that the central goal of life, and this is really the heart of it, this is what many Christians believe, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God is not needed except when there's a problem. And that good people, people who feel good about themselves, who do nice things, they're the ones who go to heaven. That is the consequence of mindless Christianity. There's a final one, a very serious one. I'm going to call it desecration. The consequence of not thinking biblically, not, not thinking according to the standard of God's thoughts, the consequence is this. It dishonors the one whose image we are to reflect. And it distorts any worship that we may offer him. Unbiblical thinking, the wrong use of your mind, it's a desecration to the one whose image you are to reflect. That's serious. Asaph in Psalm 73, as he struggled with a biblical worldview, he confesses it in the first half of Psalm 73. He looked on the unrighteous and saw that they were prosperous. And he goes through this, this testimony of struggling with his thinking. And that all changes when he, in the middle of that psalm, he says, I entered the holy place. And it all changed. My orientation, my worldview changed. But later on in that psalm, he describes his thinking this way. 
I was like a beast before you. God had created Asaph to reflect his glory, to think analogously to God, to be the one to imitate God as that special creation in all of what God has made. And Asaph instead admits, in the moment of my unbiblical thinking, I was no image of God. I was no reflection of his glory and majesty. I was like a brute beast, a smelly, clumsy, mindless beast. That's a desecration. It's a desecration of the image of God. And that's what happens when we don't think biblically. Rather, we have the command of Jesus. We, we have the, 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 the assertion of Jesus that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We must. This is not merely an invitation. This is a demand that is placed on every one of us. Because of who God is, it requires from us the appropriate response. And that appropriate response is to worship him in spirit and truth. In the right use of our minds. Colossians 3.16 emphasizes this as well. It says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The word of Christ, speaking of propositional revelation. Let the word of Christ dwell within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That is why we sing the songs that we do. They're filled with truth. That is why we emphasize wrapping our minds around texts of Scripture, seeking to understand what God has communicated to us, and that that is the highest form of worship that we can participate when we in response to God's word to us, conform our thoughts and say, Amen, this is true, I believe it, praise God. Desecration. One writer summarizes the whole goal of the Christian life with these words, and we'll end with this. The goal of the Christian life is not external conformity, Or mindless action, but a passionate love for God informed by the mind and embraced by the will. Where do we go from here? Well, that's what's before us in this series of studies. As we look at different texts of Scripture and what they contribute to this doctrine, we are going to set our minds on these truths and we will be praying and seeking and working and endeavoring to have our minds renewed through that process. As I said, if we don't, all that is left for us will be misery and menace. But if we do, great things lie ahead. We sang the song, O Church Arise, and in that first stanza, the lyrics were so apropos, chosen to set the tone. The first stanza of that Beautiful hymn, O Church Arise, says this, O Church Arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our Captain, for now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth, we'll stand against the devil's lies.
an army bold whose battle cry is love reaching out to those in darkness. That's what we want to do. Let's ask the Lord that he'd work powerfully through everything we do this year in the teaching, the discussion, the counseling, the discipleship, the fellowship. May he accomplish that, make us that army. Let's ask him. Father, we are thankful for your word, which has revealed you to us. You have not left us in the darkness. You have not left us without a witness. You have not left us to grope around, to try and find some bit of truth here or there. Not at all. You have proclaimed your truth. You've proclaimed it not only in the stars and the skies and the creation that you have made, but most importantly, you have proclaimed it. You have preached it to us in this word. You have aimed it at our minds. And that truth has transformed us already. It has been that seed of regeneration that your spirit has used to make us come alive. You've breathed breath into us. And now the lights are on. And it is our prayer, Lord, as we move ahead this year, that you would do an extraordinary work in our lives to, to train us to use our thoughts, our minds, this wonderful disposition to think your thoughts after you and in the midst of that to enjoy our closest, most personal, most beloved fellowship with you. And at the same time, that we would be those who can go into this dark world and bring this truth to others. Do this work in us, we pray. In your son's name, Jesus. Amen.